Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathan. And I'm Noah. And today we're sitting down with Michael Shear. Michael Shear is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, currently writing for the New York Times as a White House correspondent. He has covered the White House for over 13 years, doing extensive reporting on the Affordable Care Act and immigration reform during the Obama administration. He covered all four years of Mr. Trump's chaotic presidency and is the co-author of Border Wars, Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration. Today, he primarily focuses on domestic policy and regulatory policy of the Biden administration. Mr. Shear has a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and yet amidst this brief and incomplete summary of a long line of accolades, the most impressive one that I found was that he is a 1990 graduate of Claremont McKenna College. I've heard it's a pretty cool institution. So, Mr. Shear, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Happy to be here. Love to uh, come back to CMC after all these years. Not that many. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just to note as well, this is also your second time on the podcast as well. So thank you again for coming sure, back. Sure. Um, so just to start, I, I think uh, we'd like to kind of go back to your days at CMC. Um, we have a bit of a journalism program offered right now. Uh, we have this podcast that you're on right now, uh, the student life at Pomona as well. So there are opportunities for journalism um, across the five C's. But um, I'd like to know about your time at CMC and and what it was like being an uh, aspiring journalist. I know you had an internship with the uh, Los Angeles Times, I believe, uh, your junior year here. Um, if you could just kind of share some of the experiences you had hoping to get into journalism, um, kind of what you did on campus and and where you ended up going. Sure. Um, you know, I I was one of those kids in high school who loved, fell in love with journalism. I was the news editor of my high school paper. So um, kind of very directed and in kind of knew where I wanted to end up or hoped I would end up, I guess. Um, when I came to Claremont McKenna, I actually went for a year to UC Irvine before transferring. Um, and so I, I only had three years here, not four, but, um, you know, I, I think in some ways, I mean, in a lot of ways it was, it was very different because it was pre-internet. So like there wasn't, there wasn't a, there wasn't social media. There wasn't, uh, there weren't blogs, there weren't websites. Um, um, but I, but I think it was a similar environment for a young journalist, which is you sort of found, you found opportunities where you could find them. Right. And so, um, you know, outside of the curriculum I found it in, there was a five college paper at the time called the collage. And so I wrote for that and I edited stories for that. Uh, the forum kind of existed and didn't exist sort of sporadically during my three years here. Cause it was sort of always in, um, you know, there were people trying to, you know, sort of resurrect it, but then it would die off. And, um, um, and so, you know, a lot of the, the the sort of straight journalism experience I got was during the summers doing internships. And, you know, as you mentioned, I did the L.A. Times when I was in the Washington program, which we can talk about some more. Um, I also worked at, the, at, a, at a paper up in the, in the Bay Area in Palo Alto where I where I grew up. And uh, that paper no longer exists. But like at the time, there was there were there were opportunities that you could get in the summer. Um, and as far as the academic curriculum, I mean, it's it is one of my great frustrations that CMC never really embraced journalism as more of a kind of academic pursuit. Um, I had long uh, discussions and some would say arguments with uh, uh, President Jack Stark, who was the president of the college at the time. And, you know, he was very much against the idea of journalism as a part of the kind of academic curriculum, uh, despite the fact that somehow accounting was part of the curriculum. And he, he would say, oh, it's a journalism, a craft, not a not a, you know, a, a kind of educational pursuit. But that being said, even then there, and I'm sure it's similar now, uh, you know, you, there were, 
um, journalism adjacent and media related courses everywhere, right? So like I, I took every class that had the word media in it that I could find. And there was a political journalism class and there was a class at Pitzer and I think maybe even one at Scripps. And I did an independent study with Professor Rossum at one point about the Supreme Court and journalism. Mm. And Professor Rossum is still here. He's still here. I hear. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, um, uh, it was not your traditional journalism background. I mean, it wasn't a place if you wanted a traditional journalism program, you wouldn't come to CMC. But I always had this notion that, um, you know, uh, while journalism was a passion, I really loved history and government and politics. And, um, you know, I could learn to become a journalist. But but what I what I really needed was people to sort of feed those uh, those intellectual passions. It's interesting that you say that because from your story, it seems to me that like you always were on a, a path to become a journalist and that this was your pursuit from coming to college. But you you say that journalism kind of blended other interests at hand, maybe history, mm-hmm. uh, political science. Um, what about journalism in those elements was interesting to you? So I I think um, I think um, one of the so when I worked on my high school paper in and you know sort of was my first introduction to journalism I think you know the process itself was fascinating to me the process of you know going out and reporting and digging and talking to people and I never saw myself as somebody who was sitting behind a desk you know kind of do you know trapped um, all my life you know I, I sort of liked the um, mechanics of what it meant to be a journalist and be out there. And I enjoyed writing from the beginning. So it's sort of, that all sort of matched. But the question then is, what do you write about? Right. And I think that's where some people get tripped up. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with, um, uh, an adult and I, I think it may have been a, an editor at one of the papers that I had interned for, you know, here I am a, you know, high school person and I'm, I'm like saying, well, you know, what would you do? Do you, you know, should I go to University of Missouri, which has a great, you know, journalism school or try to get into NYU or, I mean, you know, there's there, you know, Northwestern, you know, has a, has a good program. And this person said, you know what, you, you know, the mechanics, you, you need to write, you need to want to write about something, you know, don't just want to write, don't just want to go through the motions and, you know, go to a college that will feed that spirit and find, and he said, it doesn't matter if you end up falling in love with literature or history or science or the law or something. And, you know, the other, and so the, the other thing that I was passionate about from the time I was a kid was just the sort of my interest in American politics. And, you know, as a nerdy kid in seventh grade was like following the Carter election or whatever it was, I can't even remember. And, you know, so it just made sense to come to a place. Um, my first experience at my first year at uh, University of California, Irvine, which was, you know, a fine school, but like my intro to poli sci class, which I guess would be the equivalent of Gov 20 here, right, um, was uh, 650 people and was so large that um, it had to be moved across to the movie theater complex that was across from the school because they didn't have a, the- you know, a, a room that could hold that many students, you know, all freshmen, all anonymous, all whatever. And then, of course, you know, and I just, I just couldn't, that wasn't, that wasn't what I wanted. And, and so, you know, of course, the next year, here I am at CMC and, you know, seven, 10, 15, 20 students or, you know, I mean, there were classes that were really, really small and, and, and that fit better what I kind of wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, a 
600, 700 people in a class at UC Irvine, that would be over half of, of CMC, really. <laughs> well, all and in at the class. time, CMC had a cap, I think. I'm pretty sure the cap at that time was 850 students. Yes, yeah, so it's um, almost, so the, entire it was almost the entire school. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, it was just a different experience. And as much as there were parts of, you know, I loved the student newspaper there. I had a great experience. I mean, there were some things that I liked about it. But I just, I sort of ultimately couldn't see myself staying there um, um, long term. And, and, and CMC, I think, ultimately was this you know, place that fed my interest in politics. And I ended up in the Washington program, which was this um, like eye-opening, amazing time where you know, I got this internship with the Los Angeles Times. I was writing stories every day. I was in the newspaper. I was on Capitol Hill. Um, um, this will date me, but it, the George H.W. Bush had just begun his presidency. There were all sorts of interesting things going on. I was... Um, uh, you know, I mean, I was an intern. I was a kid. I was not like writing the big, mostly the big front page stories, but I had, I was like a front row seat to a lot of what was going on in Washington. And I, you know, I fell in love and I vowed to get back to Washington from that moment. You mentioned the the term front row seat. I, I kind of want to explore that idea a bit by talking about um, over the nineties, over the early two thousands, um, kind of the shift into digital journalism. Um, since you started in like late eighties, early nineties, um, you were really there on the, on the forefront of, of this, this digital transformation. And just yesterday we had, um, Amanda Little in the studio who, um, is a professor at Vanderbilt focusing on, um, food studies, um, and I believe she started one of the first um, online digital magazines. So if, if you could share a bit about like what you were seeing on, on the front lines of um, this, this whole like digital transformation yeah. um, from 90s, early 2000s up. Until yeah, that no, point. it's you know, it's funny you say that because um, it is when people say, what is the biggest difference from the time you started to now? Right. I mean, I my, you know sort of active journalism as an, as first as an intern would have been in the mid eighties and then, you know, all the way through to now. Um, and, and honestly, the biggest difference is, um, is, is that very thing is the difference in the way the news is distributed and what constitutes a kind of normal day in the life of somebody who does my, does what I do. And just to give you a sense, I mean, you know, for most of the first decade and a half that I was in the business, I mean, you know, journalism had a cadence that was very familiar. You would, you know, uh, identify a story. You would, you know, wake up in the morning. You'd figure out who you're going to talk to, what the reporting was going to be. Maybe you would go out to a rally if it was a political campaign. Uh, you might, um, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd uh, gather information by phone and by, you know, uh, knocking on doors sometimes. And then at some point... You know, all of that was just news gathering. And then at some point in the afternoon, you would find your way back to either your office or a computer on the road and you would start writing and you would write a story and then you would send it to your editor in a variety of very, what seemed now like almost, you know, comical ways. Um, and, uh, and then it would be published in the newspaper the next day. And that's it. Like one story that would be published one time. And the difference now is like night and day. I mean, we are, 
you know, in this moment of massive news consumption and information consumption, I mean, and so my day is, you know, more like pre-writing some post that goes up online before I'm even awake and then writing through it for the early morning web. And then maybe, you know, the president makes a comment that you have to like fold in. So you update the web item, even as you're, you know, maybe writing an analysis piece. And then, you know, sometime in the afternoon, the president says something else. And so you're rewriting a third time. And then somebody says, well, we've got some ideas for the print paper. So you're writing a fourth time. And then after it's, you know, published, you know, something else comes up. And so you have to update it again. I mean, you're sort it's sort of a nonstop, um, you know, kind of flurry of activity that is just so different from from what it was. It seems like you're juggling so many more hoops than before previously. Um, juggling a lot of hoops and um, 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 and it's a different way. You know, I mean, I, I, there are certainly times and I'm grateful in my career and, and in my current job that I'm able to take a breath and, you know, you know, do a, you know, do stories that maybe take a week or maybe take a month even, you know, potentially. And so there are opportunities to like give some thought to it. But, um, you know, but more often, if you want to be involved in daily journalism in the, in the kind of in the mix of that, um, kind of operation, it is, um, you know, you are do you're, you're playing a different role, you know, you're satisfying, you're feeding this beast of information and you can't, you know, I used to fight it, um, used to think, oh, well, we'll just let other people do that. But it's just, it, you cannot be relevant. You cannot stay, nobody will click on you, not you personally, but no, nobody will come to the site if they think that, you know, they're going to have to wait hours before the news that they've already seen 10 times in 10 other places is reflected in your coverage. So it's, it's, it's a much more intense kind of um, exercise. I love that phrase, feeding the beast of information. I think it, it puts it really well because in today's journalism, from my understanding, you need to have a Twitter account. You need to have an online presence in order to get clicks, to get reads. Um, and those metrics are the ones determining who gets the promotion, who who does well, um, which can be beneficial because I guess some organizations, if you're getting clicks, that means you're promoting good content. But at the same time, just because you're getting clicks doesn't mean you're producing meaningful journalism. Um, how do you kind of balance that? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's it is the you know it is the worst of it, it, well, I mean, there's lots of worst. So you know, social media, in my view, has you know has a lot of good aspects to it and a lot of bad aspects to it. If you are a um, uh, you know, uh, a, a student in Egypt rebelling against a brutal dictatorship, then Twitter is an amazing tool, right? Um, on the other hand, if you are a um, lying insurrectionist in the United States and you want to pass around um, false information about uh, whether or not an election was stolen or not, Twitter is a fantastic tool, right? And 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 everything in between. And so, um, you know, Twitter can be a great way of promoting and give. I mean, you know, nobody, no journalist wants to write a story that nobody reads. I mean, that's the whole point, right? I mean, we want to have impact. We want our journalism to be seen by as many people as possible. Um, and so, you know, it is a um, 
it is such a nice thing when you see a story that you've you know labored over or that you think is really important go viral and and you realize that you know uh, the the audience is growing and what have you um, and then you in you know and maybe somebody tells you a million clicks on this you know investigative story that you spent you know a week working on and you feel really warm and fuzzy until somebody says that you know the video of the two cats rolling around the, you know, room got 27 million clicks, you know, and you're like, okay, well, <laughs> perspective, I guess, um, you know, but it's, it's, you, I mean, you know, you do the best you can and you try, and what I think is that you try to push back and, I, and I've tried to do this in my career and to make sure that the people who are in charge of these news organizations are not overly swayed by the clicks, right? Like I don't, again, I don't think it's, it's wrong to like, to, to consider, you know, the, the popularity and the, and the number of clicks that, that somebody's story has gotten, but that can't be all of it, right? Like you have to be driven by, um, and, and I thankfully work at an organization that I think is, you have to be driven by other principles. What's a, what is important? What should we be writing? Not just what we can write and what people will read because, you know, people will read a lot of stuff that they sometimes shouldn't. Um, but what should they read? What, what, what should we be writing about? And let's let that guide us as much as we can. Yeah. And that kind of gets to this next question as well. Um, thinking about the kind of like, the information beast now that that has formed with um, social media, the internet uh, continuing to grow, even things like the metaverse, which probably will not be very relevant. <laughs> Who knows, right? But <laughs> we'll all be speaking in, in <laughs> virtually at some point. Mm -hmm. bad. But with kind of the idea of like entertainment journalism um, and entertainment politics, it seems that digital media has kind of um, accelerated this problem or created this problem. Um, and maybe not necessarily created, but, um, with quote unquote journalists like Tucker Carlson, where I think even in a court case, um, he was kind of lauded as not actually being a reporter, but more of just like an, an, um, a personality, like a face to look at and, and hear speak. Um, so I'm just curious your thoughts on any ways that we could perhaps address this like entertainment politic. So I don't want to get too overly kind of academic-y, you know, ivory tower-ish, but I will say um, one of my favorite professors uh, was actually not here. Sorry, CMC. It was during graduate <laughs> school, but um, was a professor by the name of Neil Postman, um, who has passed now, but um, in his heyday wrote a, a really influential book in the 80s called um, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, and, and, and obviously the internet wasn't around. So his focus was on television and, um, his criticism, his big criticism of television, as I recall the book was that, um, you know, he, he believed technologies had an inherent bias to them that was built into the technology. And he thought, um, television's inherent bias was entertainment and, you know, that try as hard as we might as a society to, you know, kind of use television as a sober, you know, means of conveying news and information that it was doomed to failure and that it was, um, uh, that, that television would always revert back to, 
um, being mostly an entertainment medium. And that's why he was super critical of, you know, kind of the way news was developing it in those early days on television as, you know, as, as, and I mean, it's, laughably naive. I mean, it's laughably like, you know, simple now. I mean, it seems even worse now than it was then. But even then you could sort of see the beginnings of, you know, the cult of personality and all of that on TV. And look, I think Neil was, uh, Professor Postman was very pessimistic in his sort of take on all of this. And I share some of that pessimism and I'm sure he would be super pessimistic now, right? About the, you know, because I, because I do think that we are constantly, um, um, having to fight that tendency to, to treat what is ultimately, you know, a critical part of the way our society is going to thrive and survive, which is the sort of consumption of information. And we treat it like a joke, right? We treat it like a big personality, cult of personality or whatever. Um, um, I do think if I if to leave and I don't mean to ramble, but to, to leave this piece on a, a slightly more optimistic note that I think. I think there is beginning to be in this country in the kind of the wake of the questions about democracy and uh, January 6th and um, and all of that. I, th- I think there's beginning to be a little bit more of an awakening among the public about how important um, uh, some of these questions are and whether, you know, are, are, you know, whether the way as a society we're getting information is really the way we want to get information. I don't know that I don't know that we've any of us have stumbled onto the perfect solution, um, but I think maybe maybe there's a little bit of a, an understanding of of what the problem is. I would would agree with that, and I think um, the essence of what you're saying in that television is inherently for uh, entertainment was certainly taken advantage of by Donald Trump, who used the media masterfully in his debates and his appearances on Fox News. He was a headlight or headline machine, I guess, um, and he thrived off those clicks. That's how he gained a lot of his popularity. Um, so do you think the media has any any blame? Or sorry, let me, I'll, I'll remember this time. Um, let me think about how this. Is. Would you agree with my characterization that the media played a role in Donald Trump's rise? And do you think the media deserves any blame for the kind of demo- destruction of democracy that we're seeing right now? I, I do. I mean, I, I don't. So let me split those two two thoughts up. Right. I mean, I, I think there's no question that the media writ large, all of us in different ways, TV, print, magazine, blog, online, whatever. I think we all. um uh you know, contributed to giving Donald Trump a platform when I think there wasn't an understanding, an appropriate understanding of what was happening, right? Like I think, uh, you know, some more, some less, but that there were there were parts of the media that that did treat it almost like the Donald Trump show, right? And it was entertaining, and it got lots of ratings, and it got people to watch, and there there uh, and there was sort of a naivete on the part of you know, the media, I think also the, the the parties, right, the Republican Party that like, oh, this is just a kind of a funny moment and it's not going to lead anywhere. Of course, we, we see where where it ended up. Um, so I, th- I think I don't think any self-respecting journalist would sort of say the media didn't have 
a role to play in that. And, and remember, it wasn't just Fox News. I mean, he was Donald Trump famously used, um, I mean, had a million appearances on Morning Joe, for example, as a, you know, not a not a program that people think of now as a super conservative program. But it was just, you know, he was that was his kind of one of his places that he would, you know, make these fo- famous long phone calls into. Um, as to uh, whether we have been part of the kind of destruction of democracy, um, I mean, look, I, I don't want to be overly defensive, and there are, I'm sure, lots of places that people could point out mistakes that both individual members of the press and the institutions made. But I will say, um, having spent four years, um, you know, covering Trump at one of the, you know, at the New York Times, at one of the nation's largest uh, news organizations, uh, you know, I, I think um, any fair reading of how we and the Washington Post and the networks and 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 lots of journalists around the country. Um, any fair reading of what how we spent those four years um, was engaged in a truly grueling um, effort to. Um, I, I don't think we we thought of it as an effort to save democracy because we were in the middle of it, but an effort to. Um, um, make sure that people understood what was happening. And, you know, each step along the way, we would look at each other and say, holy crap, you know, like what? It just happened. And, and you know, it felt like it was our mission to, you know, make sure that people understood because the only way that democracy can survive is if people um, are making their decisions at least based on on information that that they know what's really happening. You know, if it's all um, if it's all covered up, if it's all um, spun into something else, um, you know, then then the public can't make any informed decisions. So I, 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 you know, I would sort of push back a little bit on the idea that we were sort of part of the destruction of democracy. I think we many of us were, you know, sort of um, uh, laboring to to save it. I'm not sure we knew that that's what we were doing at the time, but. And in these final few minutes we have left, um, I feel remiss if I if I didn't ask a question about um, your reporting of the Virginia Tech shooting. Um, we've in in recent years, I mean, it's it's basically been nonstop mass shootings. And um, I'm from Dallas, Texas, so uh, the Uvalde shooting um, was definitely close to home as well. But I mean, even I think last year it was the El Paso shooting. It's just nonstop. Um, and I know that journalism definitely does play a role in in perhaps the like copycat effects. Um, and I, I'm just curious your thoughts on it, um, how a journalist should balance the many concerns of publishing shooters names, photos, um, perhaps like giving uh, notoriety to shooters. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um you know, Virginia Tech was what now? Thir- 15, 15, right, 15 yeah. years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and I, you know, it was a, an incredibly intense period of reporting. You know, I was, um, I was at the Washington Post at the time, you know, um, Virginia is sort of, you know, Virginia and Maryland and D.C. are sort of considered our kind of home territory. And so it was a, you know, it was a big local story. And we, um, you know, we worked pretty nonstop for, um uh, for a, a bunch of weeks to kind of um, both cover it and to understand what had happened and why and the and the mistakes that were made in the um, uh, you know in that case um, you know the red flags that maybe were missed by um, you know professors or fellow students or family members who you know 
who maybe had seen things in this very, very disturbed young man's life that, you know, might have um, potentially averted what was just a, you know, horrendous, horrendous massacre. Um, so I, I think I think at the time, I think our intentions were were I mean, you know, it, it um, you know, it wasn't it didn't feel like a kind of um, effort to sensationalize for for purposes of, you know, of uh, uh, readership or whatever. It really it really did feel like a, 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 a effort to understand and to, to figure out this horrendous thing. I will say, you know, in the 15 years since and this like as you as you rightly point out, this just awful cadence of again and again and again and again these mass shootings i do think the whole industry is beginning to uh you know have a reassessment of are there things that even in our even in our um um even though our motivation is good and our motivation is to try to um you know get all this information out there is there are there things that we can do to kind of um uh make sure that the shooters don't get you know, glorified. And I, and I think you've seen some of that. I mean, you see way less, um, uh, you know, sort of extensive, um, uh, use of the, of a shooter's picture of their, you know, sort of in there used to be a, just a kind of immediate dive into the biographical sketches of the shooter. And I think now there tends to be, you know, that, that still happens to some extent because you can't sort of take it away from, I mean, that's part of the story, but I think there tends to be a more immediate, like dive into the biographical sketches of the victims, right? That becomes first. Um, and, and, you know, look, I, if I don't think anything that the media does or doesn't do is going to solve this problem, right? I mean, you know, we can have some effect around the edges and, and if we can make some of those choices that are consistent with our mission, but also, you know, um, uh, can can have some effect. I think we should. Um, but ultimately, I think it is the public policy, um, you know, the people who are crafting public policy who are going to have to, um, you know, confront these really tough questions about um, how do they address uh, this situation. And, and, you know, you've seen a little bit of movement in Washington. I would argue not that much, not as much as they, you know, claim. You've seen some you know, movement in states here and there. Um, but as a country, I think we're still pretty much stuck. Um, and I, and I wouldn't have a whole lot of hope that, uh, that, you know, we've seen the end of it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a tough issue to tackle. And, um, unfortunately that is all the time we have for today, but, uh, Mr. Shear, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you, um, coming and speaking with us today and, um, especially being on the show for a second time. And we look awesome. forward to your at the talk tonight. All right. Thank you for having me on. And, and uh, I look forward to hearing, uh, hearing the program when it airs. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. 